Welcome to No Silly Questions, an education podcast for parents with your hosts, Danielle Freilich and Jordana Fruchter, two New York City educators, school leaders, and friends. We know that your child's journey through school doesn't come with an instruction manual and that along the way, you'll have questions and encounter educational jargon and difficult decisions. So together with our network of experts, we're here to guide, not prescribe, and consolidate all the information you need. Today's question is truly not so silly. In fact, it's one of the most serious questions we've ever asked and answered on this podcast. What is happening with anti-Semitism on college campuses? Schools are meant to provide an education and a safe space for students to exchange ideas and expand and challenge their thinking. You're supposed to learn how to think, not what to think. At least that's how we would answer our own rapid fire question. For the most part, we see ourselves as objective facilitators and we keep things professional. But this episode is more personal and reflects both our pride in our identity as Jews and also our concern for rising levels of anti-Semitism on college campuses. A focal point of our mission is to provide information that allows parents to make informed decisions for their children. And we think that having a perspective on the culture on college campuses right now is relevant to share. David Wolpe is an American rabbi. He is a visiting scholar at Harvard Divinity School and the Max Webb Emeritus Rabbi of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. He previously taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America in New York, the American Jewish University in Los Angeles, Hunter College, and UCLA. Rabbi Wolpe was named the most influential rabbi in America by Newsweek in 2012 and among the 500 most influential Angelinos in 2016 and 2018. Rabbi Wolpe now serves as the inaugural rabbinic fellow for the ADL and a senior advisor for the Maimonides Fund. Rabbi Wolpe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you for joining us, Rabbi Wolpe. On this podcast, we seek to offer our listeners content that matters, and we believe that this is a conversation worth having. And as you know, our podcast typically covers topics related to education, learning, and development, and we've dedicated and continue to dedicate several episodes to issues of higher education. But this is the first time we are speaking about an issue quite like this, specifically anti-Semitism on college campuses. So thank you for being our conduit back to the college green, the dormitory, the lecture hall, Mm -hmm. to help us see what you saw and understand what you have come to understand. Okay, so let's start with how and why you came to Harvard in the first place and what your work has entailed. Well, first of all, thank you for that uh, kind introduction. I I came to Harvard because I was leaving my synagogue. I'd been there for 26 years. It had been wonderful, but I really did feel both it was time for a change and also it was important to give younger rabbis a chance to do what I'd had a chance to do. So someone had told me that there was an opportunity at Harvard that the Divinity School had a one-year fellowship and I uh, spoke to the president of Harvard. and He said, I think it would be wonderful to have you here. So let me put you in touch with the dean of the Divinity School, who is actually the outgoing dean, Dean Hempton, lovely man. And he said, sure, that would be great. And it was that simple. Uh, It was two phone conversations, really. uh, And I was at Harvard. And when I got there, my intention was to, I teach second semester. I didn't teach this first semester. I did a number of seminars with students did some speaking there, and I travel and speak around the country in general. But mostly I was going to research and write a book. 
I had had a couple of different ideas about what book I was going to write, but then October 7th hit and everything changed. So what I've been doing ever since then is writing, speaking, and meeting about anti-Semitism. And from your direct experience in the past couple of months, what's your sense of how it was to be Jewish, a Jewish student on campus prior to October 7th, and what it feels like now? So I've spoken to, obviously, many of the Jewish students, as well as the Jewish faculty. I think it's important to say, I, I walk around with a kippah, and I have before, and others have before, and it's not as though you get regularly harassed or yelled at or so on. It was much more indirect and subtle than that. There were clearly anti-Zionist sentiments on campus that spilled over into a sense of uh, sort of hostile environment for a lot of the Jews. But it was understandable, bearable. The president of Harvard was Jewish, Larry Bacow. There were a number of faculty who gave a lot of the Jewish students support. Larry Bacow, by the way, left last year. And what happened on October 7th was almost an explosion of the resentments that people had felt, but that were still roiling under the surface. So I think now the feeling for Jewish students on campus is that there is a sort of culture of intimidation. I don't believe that there's a sense of physical danger for most of them. I mean, some of them may feel it, but I don't believe there's physical danger. People are not being assaulted on campus or, but it's really hard to study when, you know, people are yelling genocide in the library and holding up signs about it and when you're being called a baby killer and when there are loud protests in your classroom and elsewhere. And so I think that an atmosphere that was uncomfortable is now extremely uncomfortable. And there was an article just a few days ago in the New York Times. I think the words they used were feeling alone and estranged, right? Many yeah. Jews at Harvard wonder what's next. So Rabbi Wolpe, on December 7th, you resigned from the Anti-Semitism Advisory Committee at Harvard, and you wrote quite a powerful statement of resignation that has been widely circulated. So with your permission, I'd like to read a paragraph from your resignation letter for us to unpack. Sure. Okay. You write, the system at Harvard, along with the ideology that grips far too many of the students and faculty, the ideology that works only along axes of oppression and places Jews as oppressors and therefore intrinsically evil, is evil itself. Ignoring Jewish suffering as evil, belittling or denying the Jewish experience, including unspeakable atrocities, is a vast and continuing catastrophe. Denying Israel the self-determination as a Jewish nation, accorded unthinkingly to others, is endemic and evil. Battling that combination of ideologies is the work of more than a committee or a single university. It's not going to be changed by hiring or firing a single person or posting on X or yelling at people who don't post as you wish when you wish, as though posting is the summations of one's moral character. This is the task of educating a generation and also a vast unlearning. So there are a lot of big ideas included in this paragraph. So let's break it down, starting with sort of the ideology that you write grips far too many of the students and faculty. Can you expand and sort of describe what you meant there? Sure. So the ideology is, anti-Semitism is a part of it, but that's not the overarching ideology. The overarching ideology is an intersectional, colonialist settler, hard left ideology that when you say it's hard left, that doesn't mean that it isn't widespread. Unfortunately, it is fairly widespread. 
the idea behind the ideology is as follows. All of achievement and society and social arrangements, especially the unfair ones, can be explained by the fact that certain oppressor groups hold down certain oppressed groups. And like all ideologies that are deeply problematic, it's not as though it doesn't have any truth. Of course it does, or people wouldn't believe it. And it's not as though you can't point to many examples, as you can, of groups that are oppressor and oppressed. The problem is that it sees all of society through that lens. And therefore, the group that is identified as the oppressed cannot do wrong, and the group that is the oppressor cannot do right. So that's where you get terrorism celebrated as liberation. Because if you're an oppressed group, then what you're doing can't be wrong. So it has to be put in the category of right. That's part of being oppressed is that until you're liberated, everything you do is in service of that liberation, however terrible it might be. And Jews, for a variety of reasons, are put in the oppressor group. Now, there are lots of reasons why that is wrong and doesn't fit. But that's the broad ideology, so to speak. And that's why even on October 7th, people could say that what happened to the Jews was their own fault, because after all, it's a culmination of their oppression. It has nothing to do with the evil of the people who did it to them. To see human beings in two camps is inherently bad. It's always bad. First of all, because people are complicated. They're in the image of God. They're multifaceted. And second, because even in groups, the whole point is there are a whole variety of different kinds of people. So that's the ideology that I was speaking about. It's also the other part of it is something called intersectionality, which means everything must be read through the African-American slave experience in the United States. And it doesn't matter where in the world you sympathize with people Palestinians are equivalent to slaves and the history of slavery in the United States. And as a particularly horrible and egregious example, we saw Masha Gessen in The New Yorker say very recently that people in Gaza are just like people in the Warsaw Ghetto. In other words, one oppression is exactly identical to the other. There's no history. There's no understanding a word that has now become a bad word, which is context. And so this was the ideology that unfortunately has gripped so much, not, not only the students, by the way, a lot of the faculty, and it goes beyond the walls of the campus. You find it in businesses, you find it in media, you find it in high school and elementary school. That's why I said it's not a function of one person or one institution It is an ideological battle that we all have to fight. So, Rabbi, will be part of the problem the way that I see it is that you've always been able to rely on a shared reality behind these big, strong words, words like diversity, equity, inclusion. Definitionally, these are values to strive for. And frankly, a large part of my professional life thesis and my decision to select a career as an educator, specifically in low income communities of color, you know, is the goal of increasing access and opportunity for all people. But some are now taking issue with the design and the impact of the formal organizations that share the DEI title. And then conversely, you see banners and rally chants using words like genocide, apartheid, colonialism, right? This is a sort of appropriating strong language that leaves very little room to thoughtfully discuss their origin, criteria, or relevancy to the current crisis. So is it wishful thinking to hope that we can invite nuance back into the conversation or sort of challenge the prevailing ideologies? 
I think that the first thing we have to invite back into the conversation is conversation. One of the recommendations that I've been making, really the standard recommendations for what to do at these universities, sort of all start to sound alike. An editorial by Steven Pinker basically is the same sort of thing I was saying, and we're not alone, is you have to teach people how to talk to one another again. But that also means, by the way, and here's the tricky part, you have to believe that they have something to say, and you have to be willing to have respect for their views. So if you can do that, then I believe that it is possible over time to both listen and to speak in a way that might give the sense that actually human beings are not so simple and situations are not so simple. But the investment that people have in being right and in their team is very deep. So it's not going to be easy and it's going to take a long time. And I think it's a generational task. I really do. And one of the things that I said, just as, as an aside in that, in that post that you were gracious enough to read from, is that I don't only want to denigrate the institutions that we have, we need to fund and build and support new kinds of programs and institutions that will represent a different way of looking at the world. And Rabbi Wolpe, there's sort of a piece that you referenced about the question is whether people are going to be willing to have those conversations and give the respect for each other's opinions. And a recent Harvard-Harris poll reports that among young adults, 31% reject Israel's right to exist, 50% support Hamas over Israel, 53% feel students should be free to call for a genocide of Jews, and 60% think October 7th can be justified by Palestinian grievances. And lastly, 67% think Jews are oppressors. And according to The Economist, one in five young Americans thinks the Holocaust is a myth. And I think that it's these statistics about mostly Gen Z that are pretty staggering. And, you know, with all of these statistics in mind, in your view, how can we prioritize this? What's the way in? Is it through influencers? Do institutions have the same credibility that they did in the past? So first of all, I wouldn't take, I mean, I need to know how the poll was done. I saw something that said it was an opt-in, opt-out thing. I also think there is a sense in which when something really drastic is going on, people are much more interested in identifying with their team than they are in answering the poll honestly. So even though it is alarming, and I'm sure some of those statistics are true, or at least approaching the truth, I also wouldn't want to take those as exactly correct, because right now, I think for some of them, it was, well, if I say that the Holocaust happens, that means I'm supporting Israel. I mean, it's that simply foolish minded. I really do. Having said that, I really don't see any alternative other than an increased emphasis on both dialogue and education. And also, by the way, at all these universities, an enforcement of the rules as they exist, because a lot of this is that there were no consequences. People really do respond to consequences. And also what people believe when they're 20 years old is not necessarily what they believe when they're 40 years old. I did something at a, I I gave a talk at a synagogue the other night and a man got up and he said, look, when I was, when I was young, I was in the SDS, which is the far left of the far, it was the Black Panthers. They were militant and so on during the sixties. He said, and I'm so ashamed now of what I thought and did then. So have some hope. That's part of it. Also, the other part of it that I think is really important is 
what these students bring when they come into the university, where they come from in the world, what beliefs they've been brought up with in different places. Ayan Hirsi Ali, who now was just converted to Christianity, but she was talking about how in Somalia she grew up hearing Jews were evil. So that's true in a lot of places in the world. And when you hear that when you're young and then you come to a campus and there are protests against the Jewish state, it's easy to get radicalized. So there are lots of threads to unpick here. And I think, I don't want to say the Jewish community. I think the community of people who are good and and believe in right and kindness and justice and nuance and complexity and thoughtfulness, we all have a lot of work to do. Hey everyone, Danielle and Jordana here to tell you about three popular services listeners are taking advantage of. Consulting, referrals, and speaking engagements. Have a question or situation for your family that we can support you with? Schedule a one-on-one consult through NSQ Consulting. Need to find a provider or specialist for your child? Submit an inquiry through NSQ Parent Providers Connect and we'll find a match. Want to offer a workshop with us at your company? Go ahead and reach out through NSQ Speaking Engagements. No Silly Questions is your hub for all information relating to your child's learning, education, and development at www.nosillyquestionspodcast.com. Rabbi Wolfie, in the past few weeks, there's been these campaigns on social media, right, where people were tracking down, I know, especially in New York City, which is where Danielle and I are very plugged in, like who was pulling down the pictures of the hostages and putting their faces on social media and sending those those images to places of where these people work or their future employers. What is your thought on all of that? I think it's called doxing. <laughs> yeah, it's called doxing. I mean, look, I think that if you're 20 years old and you pull down a hostage poster, I don't think that you should lose your career over it. If you're 35 and you're going around New York and pulling down the pictures of kidnapped people, <laughs> I wouldn't hire you. I wouldn't hire you. And if you're 20, I think the only way I would hire you is if when you're 22 or 24 or 26 and you come to me for a job, you make it very clear that you're ashamed of what you did. But the doxing question is, if you commit a public act and someone says it was you, I don't know if that's the same as if you commit a private act and someone reveals your identity. That's a different thing. If somebody at a party says something to me that I think is wrong and I put it on social media, that's bad. That's really bad. But if somebody's walking around in a public area and tearing down posters, which I think is illegal in addition to being immoral, and somebody says, this is the person who did it, that's at least a gray area to me. Okay. Thank you. That's helpful. The difference between public and private. So thank you for that. So Rabbi Wolpe, you've spoken that it's not just about denigrating the old or denigrating what we have, but it's really about building the new, right? But if you're the parent of a high school junior or senior, you you know, you are likely still having to make your college decision. So we're wondering if you had a student that was in that stage of life, would you send your own child to a college campus like a Penn, Harvard, MIT? I cite those schools specifically because their presidents recently came before Congress. Yeah. Right. So we'd love to hear, you know, how you'd think through that decision. I would say it depends very much on what my kid was like. I would let them know that they're going to face in a lot of uh, first of all, if they're going to study physics, they're going to have a lot less problem than if they want to study literature, because the STEM faculties are 
let me put it the let me do it the other way. The, the humanities faculties are wildly overrepresented in these ideologies. Most of the science people don't have much time for that because they're actually interested in things that are factual and correct. If he or she was someone who was either if they wanted to be combative and would go to the university, or they only wanted to stay inside the Jewish community, or they were completely apolitical, not paying attention, I would warn them, but I would say maybe you could be all right. But if they were at all sensitive to these kinds of slights, or they were the kind of people who needed people around them to be part of their community and to like them and so on, no, I, I would say go somewhere where you know, because your career is not dispositive on where you go to college. It's whether you have passion and drive and stamina and social skills and a modicum of ability in the field you pick. Those things matter so much more. And I would not think that that was going to be the most important, in addition to the fact that right now, the reputations of those schools are a little bit in a freefall. You know, I, I said as a kind of joke, I said it online too, but I said it first to my congregation. When I left the congregation, I, everybody said, ooh, Harvard. And now everybody's going, wait, Harvard? And, and I feel that. It's like, what would you, why would you want to go there of all places? Which I have to tell you, for someone who, who's my age, who grew up in the United States, to say, I can't believe you would want to waste your time being at Harvard. It's like insane. But that's where we are. I come and everything falls apart. I don't know that's about <laughs> And I graduated from Penn. It's like I can't go anywhere. <laughs> no, but that's really tragic. As someone, I, I went to Harvard's Graduate School of Education, and I was so excited to be there. You know, I felt so proud and like I was in, you know, a live action Harry Potter, just walking through right. the grandeur of the campus and, you know, being able to study there. And it's it's really tragic to hear that for a Jewish student who just simply wants to study and pursue their passion and be in community with others that you would not recommend being able. And I know you, you've spoken about we are people of the book. That's right. Right. It's, it's part of our value system. Absolutely. Actually, we're highly literate and we love to. Yeah battle it out and, and have these sort of intellectual discussions. So it's, it's, I'm having to really pause on what you're saying. It's very painful. Does Harvard believe it has an anti-Semitism problem? Define Harvard. Uh, the president of Harvard said explicitly to the Hillel, we know we have a problem with anti-Semitism. She said it explicitly and she said, we are going to investigate it the same way we investigated racism. So I don't, I think it's really hard to deny after the past two months that Harvard has an anti-Semitism problem. Look, the, the president appointed an anti-Semitism advisory committee. You don't do that if you don't think you have a problem. For me, the big distinction between what Harvard writ large and what I, the way that, that they're approaching it and the way I think it needs to be approached is that they're being gradual, process-oriented, having an advisory committee, but still things are going on. And I think this is a crisis. And I wanted immediate action. I wanted to see those students told they cannot go into classrooms. They can't walk into Widener. They can't do these things. And they continue to do them. And so as far as I'm concerned, the most important thing, I learned this running an institution, when something really bad is happening, the most important thing you can do if you want to fix it is to show visibly that you're taking steps. And there have been no visible, as far as I could see, as far as most people could see, no visible steps that say, we know this is happening, we're going to stop it, get on board. 
And what kind of support do you have from others in the theology department at Harvard who are not Jewish? I'm not sure that the theology department is the most supportive of all the departments at Harvard, but I certainly have. There are certainly many faculty members that have reached out and also have spoken independently to say that this is, you know, wrong and insupportable. So Rabbi Wolpe, what does all of this mean for Jews in America in specific? What's the bigger picture? And I think that something else that sort of comes to mind is, should we be more concerned today for Israel or for the Jewish diaspora? There's so much concern to go around. I would say, I think that Jews in Europe are actually at much greater risk than Jews in America. Um, I was at the London anti-Semitism parade and all I can say is, you know, it was, it was wonderful and it was beautiful, but I really think it's a lot harder to be a British Jew or a French Jew than it is to be an American Jew. I just saw last night on Israeli TV that French Aliyah to Israel went up by, I think it was over 400% over the past few months. I'm not surprised. Yeah. That, that will, of course, further improve the food in Israel, but it won't do much <laughs> for France. But in America, here's the difference between America and other countries that I still think is true, which is in most of our wanderings, we were the identified other. There were Frenchmen and Jews, there were Englishmen and Jews, there were Germans and Jews, there were Russians and Jews. Now, by the way, there's a Muslim population as well, but it's still, there are Muslims, there are Jews, there are people who identify as French. There aren't Americans and Jews. There are so many different minorities that we have many, 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 many allies in this country of all different stripes and kinds. And so it's really important that Jews make these alliances, that we reach out to different communities, that we, I mean, I had a, a beautiful service online, actually, I'm sure I'm not telling tales out of school, I'm sure that it's okay, that was organized by, that I, I organized together with Van Jones from CNN and Charles Sandberg. And it was basically black preachers and Jewish preachers together. And it was beautiful. And it was very mutually supportive. And he has been very supportive. And the idea was we have lots of different kinds of coalitions and ideologies in America. And people can join together in service of good. And I really do believe that that's what America has been and can continue to be. But I think that Jews elsewhere, I mean, look, we clearly have a battle to fight. I think it's even worse if you're in Europe. And Rabbi Wolpe, what's your perspective on how sort of the different factions of American Jewry, namely modern Orthodox or Orthodox, conservative and reform, is there some sort of more mutual ground that these three main factions of Jews are finding? I think that I grew up with a very strong background and connection to Israel, but find that a lot of friends who grew up reform have a different take on Israel than I do or don't quite realize the extent to which it affects their ability to live their lives as Jews here in America. So how has that changed? I think that's true. And I think that that is still true. But I am hopeful. I see some people being shocked that the people they thought were their allies are not their allies uh, when it comes to Israel. And so there will, will be people who will not see Israel the way we do. But I think by far the majority of Jews who are not entirely ideologically captured understand how important Israel is. And I am, I'm hopeful that that will continue to make inroads as people see that not just that Israel is just in this, but that given half a chance, Israel will do the right thing. When people say, you know, that why hasn't Israel made peace? 
I say to them, there's so much evidence that all you have to do is want peace with Israel and you get it. Look at Egypt, look at Jordan, look at the Abraham Accords. All you have to do is really want it. That's it. It's not so hard. That's why Israel's made six offers to the Palestinians. It's not so hard. And so I really do, I, I think that this could be a wake-up call, but there will be divisions. I mean, the truth is there always were. Jews have never been as unified as we wished. And Israel is certainly, among some Jews, a pretty divisive issue. So Rabbi Wolpe, just shifting gears slightly, many of our listeners have young children in elementary school or middle school. So we're wondering what advice you have for parents for how to talk to their children about what's happening in the world. I think that it's important that you make clear to kids the same thing I try to make clear to adults, which is don't panic. Remember how powerfully biased social media and news are towards the negative. Powerfully biased, which makes perfect sense. You know, I did a dialogue the other night with Steve Pinker, and this is one of his great themes. And he put it this way. He said, when I was in college, all people talked about was the Vietnam War. That was it. That dominated all the headlines. All people talked about it. He said, but there is no headline that's going to appear in any paper tomorrow that says 40 years with no war in Vietnam. Right. And the same thing here. You know, I mean, yes, you can call in a bomb threat to a synagogue and you will get incredible publicity. But nobody says, you know, 100 years, no synagogues bombed. And so I think that you have to say to your kids, depending on the age, the world is never perfectly safe. You know that. Remember the other day when you fell down on the playground and you hurt yourself? You can always hurt yourself in the world and, and you can sometimes hurt other people. That's true. But overwhelmingly, the world is safe and we watch out for you. And yes, there are people who dislike Jews and that's a, a foolish hatred that we're trying to work on and trying to make better. But I want you to know that what you make of your life will be primarily what you make of your life, not what other people make of it for you. And that's really important to keep in mind. And I think that when you say that, you're telling the truth. I'm not asking people to lie to their kids. I think the vast majority of us for the vast majority of our lives are incredibly safe, safer than, I mean, go to your great, 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 great grandparents. They would say, what are you kidding? Somebody shoved someone at Harvard Yard and you're all going nuts. Somebody held up a banner. I, I, like where my ancestors come from, we'll take the banner. Go ahead, put up a hundred banners. I mean, compared to where we came from, we have to keep some perspective. So I would say be vigilant, but don't panic and don't spread that panic to your children if there's not a good reason to. Right. And that's a good that's a good message, you know, and that anti-Semitism has been around for thirty five hundred years. But yeah. but Rabbi will be, you know, as the granddaughter of four Holocaust survivors, I have to tell you, these two months have been the absolute worst two months of my life as a Jewish person. And it does feel different. Does it feel different to you or does it feel like more of the same? I'm struggling to not panic and catastrophize when I see so much dehumanizing anti-Semitic propaganda, right, that we saw precipitated the Holocaust. You know, whenever you dehumanize a group of people, it gives you carte blanche to treat them in kind. And we are even more connected, you know, now than we were in Vietnam, in the Holocaust, et cetera. And so it feels like things are accelerating at a rapid rate. So I would say two things about that. The first is, if you have trauma yourself or in your family, then especially what happened on October 7th, but the aftermath too, it's going to feel, I mean, it's going to re-trigger 
since trauma is always present in the brain, it's going to re-trigger that in a way that no one should minimize. And it's a different experience for people who grew up with that than people who didn't. No question about it. The second thing is, yeah, it feels different. There's definitely been a huge explosion of anti-Jewish, anti-Israel feeling in America in the past two months, maybe a little bit more than two months now. And that's why I want to be careful to be strategic and thoughtful and not catastrophize, because we really do have many allies. And one of the things that Jews are really good at is identifying enemies. And one of the things we're not so good at is identifying friends. So I don't negate what you said at all. Although it's also really important to understand that World War II and the Holocaust is a bad historical analogy for almost everything that's not the Holocaust. There are lots of things in in Jewish history that are a lot closer to what's going on now, I think, than World War II. I don't see this as a prelude to a Holocaust. There are lots of bad things that could happen short of that. And so it's really important to fight and be vigilant. And I have been encouraged. I haven't agreed with everything that every public Jew has done, but I've been really encouraged by how free Jews feel to speak out, to use their resources, to use their voices. And I think that that is incredibly helpful, important, and we have to keep doing it. So that's, I think, the single most important lesson to draw here is whatever you feel inside, don't act scared in the world, still be like people who said, should they put their mezuzahs away or their Hanukkah away? I thought that is the worst thing you could do. Harvard put its menorah away. Right. right? The (laughs) worst thing you could do. Right. Exactly. But after they lit it, at least. Right. So I really, I mean, I think that to be open and public and Jewish is incredibly important And also, by the way, when you act proud of who you are, it tends to help other people feel more proud and to want to be associated with you. People generally don't want to be associated with people who are cowering and hiding. Absolutely. I read somewhere, you know, I'm not a Jew on trembling knees, right? That was what Begin said. Yes. That actually was a quote from Menachem Begin. And he knew what it was, having come from Poland, to be afraid. And he was was not going to be afraid anymore. And I just want to end on, on that note with one comment, which is that I work in Jewish education. And I think that something extremely encouraging that we're experiencing right now is a renewed and increased interest in Jewish education, which is a really positive sign. And hopefully that trend continues. Right. Well, Harvard's applications have gone down 17%. I am sure Jordana's have made up that ground and and then some. So So, Rabbi Wolpe, we we always end our episodes with the same segment we call Extra Credit. They're rapid fire fill in the blank style questions. Go ahead. Okay. If you could tell parents one thing, it would be? Raise your children to be proud Jews. The role of schools is to? Be kind to other people. One thing that gives you hope for the future of education is? That human beings are endlessly creative and inventive, and most of them want to see a better future. Rabbi Wolpe, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Great to talk to you. I want to say amen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Rabbi Wolpe. It's great to speak with you. And I know that our listeners will want to continue to to follow you. Where's Where can they find you? Where's best? They can find me on Facebook at Rabbi Wolpe and on Twitter at Rabbi Wolpe, on Instagram at David J. Wolpe. J is the middle initial, David J. Wolpe. Thank you so much. 
thank you for listening to this episode of No Silly Questions. We hope you enjoyed learning from our guests as much as we did, and we'll see you back next week. For more information on this podcast, please visit our website at nosillyquestionspodcast.com and check out our Instagram account at nosillyquestionspodcast.com.